Welcome to Health Trust Clinical Services Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. Today's guest is Dr. Craig Morrison with the Southern Joint Replacement Institute at TriStar Centennial Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Morrison talks with me about his 20 years of experience with hip, shoulder, and knee joint replacement, resuming care, and new hospital protocols. We also discuss leveraging technology, patient follow-up care innovation, and Dr. Morrison's deep appreciation for frontline staff. This is an episode about safety, a new normal, and improving quality of life one procedure at a time. Dr. Morrison is a wealth of knowledge, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, so my name is Craig Morrison. Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Nashville. Uh, I subspecialize in joint replacement surgery, specifically for the knee, hip, and shoulder. I've been in practice uh, 19 years now, and at this point, I'm pretty close to being back to a normal volume from uh, before we shut down from COVID. And that typically is two full clinics a, day, a week for me, uh, two, two full days in the OR, and then uh, on Fridays is either the OR or clinic, depending on the week. That's, that is very busy and awesome news. That is wonderful that you guys are getting back to um, pre-COVID status. Can you tell me, what is, has what is your clinic done to really help patients feel safe um, to come back for their visits and their surgeries? Well, you know, during the, the kind of closeout, we still were doing uh, telehealth visits, not quite to the same volume. But we gave all patients uh, that option, and at that time, that was their only option. So some of our patients got used to that. We saw, we did new patients on telehealth and then rescheduled them when we opened up. The way that we're keeping them safe is first continuing to offer that as an option if they don't feel good about coming in. If they do want to come in, then just like coming into the hospital, everybody is screened with questions about symptoms or exposure, and they're also check, have their temperature checked. Everyone is wearing a mask, including all staff and patients, and we ask that unless absolutely necessary that no patient has a family member with them. Uh, sometimes in our practice, it's necessary older patients um, need kind of need or want a caregiver with them, and so we ask that they only bring one if they do, and that they wear a mask as well. Yeah, that absolutely that makes sense. Um, and I've seen a lot of different um, facilities move to telehealth. How has that transition for some of your patients been? You know, when we were when we were doing it, it was it was new for all of us, and right now we're using kind of things that people are used to. We're using FaceTime or uh, Google Duo, and not going through the EMR. That's a, that's a, can be a little bit more cumbersome. So we're taking advantage of the 
the ability to do that without worrying about the HIPAA issues and hope that that will continue. Uh, most patients have been very receptive to it, uh, but at the end of the day, they really do want to see the physician at some point. And right. certainly if you're talking to someone about a, an operation and the risk and benefits, et cetera, eventually you want to do that in person and you also want to examine them well before you ever fully recommend surgical uh, intervention. In addition, our follow-ups, there are some things that we just can't do telehealth, but I think in the future it'll help us be a little more efficient triaging people that, about whether they really need to come in or not. Right. You know, that is one of the questions we had here um, that we wanted to ask, you know, are, are some of these changes that have occurred due to the pandemic, are there things that you guys think that you will continue to do post-pandemic, you know, just in your normal practice that you would like to maintain? There just seems to be a lot of innovation that happened, maybe the silver lining um, through the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I think the one thing is that telehealth or remote visit, you know, take advantage of some of the digital technology. Um, we have patients that come from a long way away for surgery. And, you know, oftentimes one of the questions that they ask is, do I need to come back for follow-up with you or can I follow up with someone local? And we always would prefer to follow our patients with joint replacement. They are our patients for life, essentially. We follow them uh, one to two years for the life of their joint, every one or two years. So this at least gives us the ability for someone that lives several hours away to do a check-in digitally. Uh, and I think we will continue that. I also would say that from a physical therapy standpoint, there was already a move, probably forced mainly by the bundle payments, uh, to reduce costs and do some remote physical therapy or telephysical therapy. And I think that that will become more and more of the norm where you have some patients that come in and if they're doing well and they seem to be kind of on autopilot, that you switch more to remote visits and just check-ins. I think that'll stick. Yeah, that I totally agree. And, you know, some I have had, um, we've been also interviewing clinical warriors. And those are people in the front lines that have really just made a, a big difference during this COVID pandemic. Nurses, physicians, anesthesiologists, as you can imagine. And they've said, you know, they put a lot of telehealth into their practices too, and have said that it actually, in some respects, has opened up the doors to let them um, communicate with their patients even more often than they normally would, just because it's so easy to jump on these t different telehealth features. And I'm wondering if that will happen in um, clinicians' offices to our physicians' offices, even with navigators and joint coordinators, if this will be an option that they start to utilize? Yeah, I think it will be. You know, first off, I I just would like to say a big thanks to the ones that were on the front line. Um, even though I'm a physician as an orthopedic surgeon, thankfully for myself and especially for the patients, I didn't have to be called in in Nashville to do anything that 
outside of my <laughs> scope. So I very much appreciate what they did. And I do know that in our hospital, I'm sure in other hospitals that they used sort of remote or telehealth visits, even in their rounding, so that they limited the amount of times and the number of people that had to go into the rooms where patients were positive for coronavirus. So they were able to talk to them and kind of examine them just outside of the room. And I, I think that may be something that continues as well, because this probably won't be, these aren't the only patients that you want to limit contact with. That's right. That's right. That's, that is a lot of the message we've heard. And, you know, I think it brings up that it sounds like a lot of your patients are coming back to the clinic from from your um, clinic days and what you've observed. You know, it, it just brings us to asking the question, you know, do you, as a physician, do you feel it's safe for patients to have elective procedures in the hospital um, now? Is this a is it safe for patients to come back? I do, yeah. I can only speak to to our area. Um, but you, you see the trend kind of going down even in the hot spots. I would just say from our standpoint, we, the hospital was never overrun with coronavirus patients. It didn't even come close. So they were able to keep those patients, as well as the ones that were even waiting to get their test results back, completely isolated into a separate part of the hospital. So the vast majority of this hospital and most hospitals were never really exposed to that. So that's one thing that makes it safe. I would say the other thing that makes it safe is exactly what we talked about for the clinic. Everybody is being screened that comes into the hospital. Uh, all staff, all visitors, all patients, everybody has to wear a mask. So in a lot of ways, you know, it's as, it's as safe as it possibly could be or ever has been for a transmittable disease like this. That is exactly what we keep hearing over and over. Our physicians are saying that the hospitals and our physicians' offices are likely safer than they've ever been to have a procedure just because many of our hospitals, like you said, weren't at capacity and the cleaning measures and the extent of social distancing and um, barriers like uh, masks that are being used are more so than we've ever had in the past. So um, that is very promising. I think we're a lot of confusion. We have clinical and non-clinical that listen to this podcast. You know, why do they call it an elective? What is an elective procedure? Why do we call things elective when they seem like they're not, that you need to get them done or they're a choice? Well, um, it's, it's called elective because the timing of the surgery is not urgent and therefore the patient and the physician have the ability to electively schedule the timing. It's not in most cases because the procedure is unnecessary, you know, not to step on some of my colleagues' toes, but, you know, a purely cosmetic surgery, you might say, is completely elective. It doesn't ever need to be done. But most of the procedures we're talking about and joint replacement specifically is, although not urgent, it is time sensitive. You know, it's something that 
for a patient's quality of life and function uh, is necessary. It's just not urgent. And so it's time sensitive. And the longer we went on, the more you had patients that the timing became more and more urgent or their function was going to deteriorate significantly. Actually, that is something um, that we're hearing quite often is patients are saying, why would anyone have an elective procedure? Not realizing many of the procedures that you perform are counted as or called elective procedures. And they're wondering why patients would want to have that. I think that's a hospital term that we use often that maybe the public doesn't really understand. Yeah, I think elective, like you said, it's not that you're electing to have the surgery necessarily. The surgery is necessary, but you have the ability to elect the time in which you do it. So it is, it's not urgent, but it's certainly time sensitive. And you can imagine, you know, a patient that, can't stand or walk much without pain because of that their job might be in jeopardy and what we know about arthritis specifically is only gets worse so they're going to have to have it done at some point cardiologists you know if you have uh, angina or coronary artery disease but are not in an active heart attack technically getting that taken care of is elective only in that it's not urgent but it's certainly time sensitive Right, exactly. And then I guess, um, could you maybe describe what a patient should expect when they come to the hospital to have a surgical procedure? What will be different than what they experienced before? Well, um, first they should expect some, some calls even before they come to the hospital. So once they're scheduled, they'll get their the typical calls beforehand to go through their his, their history, their medications, etc., uh, and be educated. But they'll also be asked a lot of screening questions, um, not only symptoms, but if they've been exposed to someone. That'll happen once several days before, and then it'll happen again within two to three days of coming to the hospital. And we ask patients that once they schedule surgery, that they essentially try to self-quarantine themselves because if they're asymptomatic and not exposed at that time, we don't want them to get exposed between that time and the time of their surgery. When they come to the hospital, there are limited entrances so that they can be manned by people that are screening. So they'll be asked um, at our hospital to come to one entrance and when they come up they again before they truly enter the hospital will be screened for questions they'll have their temperature taken and they'll be given a mask and they'll wear that mask throughout their stay everyone is allowed one visitor and they will go through the same process okay perfect i think that there's a also um there seems to be some fear and just what can i expect especially since they're not going to be bringing it people with them as they typically would, as many people, as many people typically would to the hospital. So anything that's really helpful to help our our patients not feel um, afraid whenever they're coming in. And I do think the point is, I mean, we've all been, we've gotten a little used to it, but, you know, you go to a restaurant or a grocery store and 
when you see people in masks, you think something's wrong. And the hospital is one of the few places it seems like in society right now, at least around here, where it can be mandated that everybody wears masks. So you will see a lot of masks. I think the point there is to not be anxious that because there are so many mask wearing people that something is wrong or they're trying to protect themselves from something. Understand that, it, that that's a good sign because every person that's wearing a mask is protecting you. It's not, your mask isn't protecting you from them, it's their mask protecting you from them. So the more masks you see, the safer you should feel. No, that, I think that's perfect advice. That makes complete sense. And I think it's exactly the type of message that, you know, the community needs to hear. Um, and we definitely don't want, you know, you mentioned if people do put off these procedures, let's say that someone that, that you have seen them in the clinic and have recognized that they need a knee or a hip replacement. What are some of the risks if they do put these procedures off, if they need them? Well, the, the main risk is, you know, continued decrease in function because of an increase in pain. Um, these things don't happen quickly in most patients, but what we do see is, you know, there is a little bit of a tipping point in terms of patients conditioning, muscle strength, balance, etc., that makes their recovery more difficult if they wait too long. Uh, so if you get to a patient who's already having to use a walking aid, that probably means they're going to have to work a lot harder in their recovery. Um, there are some cases, especially on the hip side, where patients can have a fairly rapid acceleration of their wear. They can collapse the bone and so when you lose that bone it makes the surgery more difficult and it can also affect the outcome so once a patient gets to a point from a quality of life standpoint that they think they need it uh, you probably shouldn't be waiting more than a few weeks understood and so really one of my questions was going to be you know what patients should not be coming um, in for elective procedures such as these replacements, but it sounds like that's really a physician-patient decision based on where they are in their progression of um, the deterioration of their hip or what have you. Is that correct? It is. I mean, I think that if you start with patients that are at higher risk, um, if they contract coronavirus, uh, you know, older patients, patients with significant cardiopulmonary comorbidities. I think those patients, if you see their x-rays, you see them, you see their function, if they're earlier in the disease process and they're getting around pretty well, uh, those patients you might recommend putting it off a little bit longer because you know that they're, they've got some margin. Um, I also would say that patients that have very little social support and so may require an inpatient rehab or skilled nursing stay after surgery should probably put that off because we know that the risk is higher in those closed facilities. And 
it's not because you don't want those patients coming to the hospital. As we mentioned, the hospital is a very safe place. But if you have joint replacement surgery, you're out and about a lot. You got to go to physical therapy. You got to go to physician follow-up. So you are increasing your chance of exposure. So those, those are the patients that I think we're, we're still telling, you know, if you've got that margin in your disease and your quality of life, that we're going to wait a little bit longer. And that is a pretty small subset of the population. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, you know, the hospital and the physician's offices are, are a very safe place now to have these procedures and they shouldn't be at home in pain whenever there's something that they could really get on either a telehealth call or a or or actually a visit in the office they should feel confident that their offices are putting all these measures into place to where they can feel safe that they to come back into our hospitals and i think you've made that really clear well i was just going to say there's a lot of reasons patients are anxious about having surgery right now um a joint replacement notoriously is a long recovery. There's downtime. So it's not just, I think, the health issue that people are concerned about. Um, you know, coronavirus has had a big effect not only on people's health, but on the economy. Some people's yes. financial status may be uh, unknown. They may have lost their job. They may have run through some of the money that they would have otherwise used while they were off for surgery and i think what what i would encourage patients to do is is find the right answers from the right sources so if you are just saying you know i, I wanted to have my joint replacement this year but now i just can't do it because i know i'm gonna have to be off work several weeks and my deductible is going to be this much it may not be as long as you think and there may be a lot of options that the office and hospital can work with you to make it possible for you to have that surgery. So I mm -hmm. would encourage patients to reach out, schedule an office visit or schedule a telehealth visit, at least to get the right answers for them to make the decision for themselves and not just rely on hearsay. Great advice. I think so much information out there that is misinformed. Um, it causes our patients to be misinformed. And, and I, I think that's great guidance and advice. Even, even if sometimes there's physical therapy or other means that can be done if surgery isn't an option or may not be an option right away, it seems like um, making an appointment and seeing their surgeon or their physician is the best option just to ensure that they're they're getting the right care at the right time. So that's yeah. great guidance. I really appreciate that. What else did I not ask? You know, I, you're exactly right. The financial piece is not something that I did ask a lot about. And I know it's something that a lot of our patients definitely are thinking about. Are there other things that, you know, I didn't ask that you feel are important? Well, I, I do think one of the big questions that gets asked um, and that patients would rightly think about is what about testing? Um, is everybody in the hospital tested? Mm -hmm. uh, should I be tested before I come to the hospital? And, you know, the reality is that in a perfect world, we can test everybody every day and get the results back within minutes so that they can get on with their work. 
and that we can test every patient coming into the hospital the day of surgery and get a quick result. Uh, but not only is that testing not widely available to do that, uh, the accuracy is not good enough that you can hang your hat on it in your in the way that you treat them. So we have to treat and we do treat every patient as if they are positive when they come in. That's why the masking, et cetera. Um, if we test people several days out, because most of the outpatient testing takes three to five days to get back, then even if they're negative, you can't be certain that when they come to the hospital, they have been, haven't been exposed in the interim. So again, it doesn't help change what we do or help make clinical decisions. So there's a logic behind not testing most people, even though it seems like a, you know, like a safety blanket. It just doesn't change our decisions, and that's why we don't do testing on everybody. Well, thank you so much. We sure do appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. We'll talk to you all later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit education.healthtrustpg.com to find additional resources for clinicians and to listen to more of our candid conversations.